Hello, welcome to Nyasha Z Presents, the channel where I present to you young Zimbabweans in professional and academic spaces. Today is episode number 12, but before we dive into it, I have a special announcement, which is we have officially launched the podcast onto all your favorite podcast streaming apps. So you can go to Spotify, Apple Music, Apple Podcasts. Amazon Music, Pandora, all that good stuff. You can listen while you're walking, running, uh, driving to work, you know, cooking your favorite meal. Don't forget to give us five star ratings on Apple Podcasts. And the journey continues, guys. It continues. And so on episode 12, I we are joined by Rutendo Shigora. I actually know her from my school, UPenn. She went to UPenn, but she started a Dominican convent in Harare. And then she, from Penn, she got the World Scholarship, um, yay, and was at Oxford. And now she's back working as an um, investment associate. Like, she just has a really um, interesting trajectory in life. And I have to be honest though, this is one of the few interviews where I had to keep up. Like, I would ask her a question and then she would say all these fascinating things and then i'll think oh my gosh which direction should i go it's all fascinating i'm still trying to digest really like the fictional characters that we see in movies where the person just is given a problem and then they're like okay this is the solution this is what happens and we're all like yes simon um ladies and gentlemen episode 12 with rutendo chikora thanks for having me all right so we're gonna start um by how are you doing and you know, how have you been surviving this whole pandemic that has been happening? I've largely been fine. Um, I think it's been a really big adjustment from, you know, making my my home my workplace to, yeah. um, and really kind of trying to build out new boundaries for when work stops and when life begins. And so yeah. really big adjustment from a work perspective, really tough not to be able to travel nearly as much as I would like. Um, for sure. But um but besides that, hold, holding up. So what have you been doing? Like, have you come up with like something that you do daily or regularly just to keep yourself sane and motivated and energized? Or have, have you sure. kept it the same way? Like nothing has changed. Um, I think I cook a lot more than I used to when I would have to go to the office. And so one mm -hmm. of the great things about not having a commute is like you have the time to actually meal prep and, and meal plan and execute your meals during you know, during the workday too, as a, as a kind of side thing. And so yeah. cooking a lot more, which has been really good. Um, I recently like kind of got a subscription to Calm. And so trying to do a little bit more meditation so I can clear my nice. brain out um, yeah. at the end of the day. And so really enjoying using Calm for that. Um, but that's probably the, bi the big thing. And then trying to get outside as much as I can. So trying to walk, whether it's just on the roof of my building or like outside around the block, just to just to get myself moving. You do work in a very um, high stakes industry. So it is also an industry which traditionally is like very male dominated. So how, tell me about how you found your space in that industry. Financial um, services, yeah. The thing that drew me to it was because I really care about being part of the, the capital allocation machine in the world, yeah. right? And that's because um, you and I, 
both come from a part of the world where it's really, really expensive to get capital to fund the, you know, the kinds of businesses that are going to generate economic growth and all of that. And so I really wanted to understand how global capital works and moves and hopefully yeah. one day be a, a capital allocator to places like, um, like Zimbabwe. And so the kind of thing that like made me a little bit unafraid of going into the industry was that I knew that it's tied to my mission really closely. And so I wanted it. And so, you know, what it, whatever it takes. Um, but then in terms of navigating it as a, as a woman and also as a, like a, a woman of color, yes. a lot of it has been about having like really good mentors mm -hmm. and really good advocates at work. Um, and so I have a mentor of mine at work who, you know, he's the person that I go to when I'm struggling, whether it's just with general confidence when I'm trying something new or when I'm trying to figure out how to navigate situations in which I may be the only person who looks like me in that environment and feel a little bit uncomfortable. And so having mentors that are really kind of dedicated to coaching me through um, the difficult situations and also like reminding me that I belong and I deserve to be there and all of that has been has been like really, really helpful for me. I think what's striking to me right now is, you know, I also have like major issues sometimes with like just trying to get myself esteem up and everything. So it's interesting to hear that, you know, we look up to you so much. So to hear that, you know, everyone is kind of on their journey of self-confidence and it's not like one event is going to make you very confident and then that's it. Like, yeah, it's kind of a process where you have to keep reminding yourself that you've got this. So my question is um, to do with, so you, you have um, a number of um, opportunities that you've gone after and you've accomplished. Do you feel any pressure to, to, like, do you feel like I have to keep doing something bigger than this because you've already accomplished so much? Or do you feel like, okay, I'm in a good place. I've done enough and I'm good. Um, I definitely still feel pressure every day to do mm -hmm. more. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think it's, part of it is like just kind of, thinking about the the range of opportunities that I've had and feeling like not doing more is is kind of wasting those opportunities is, is part of the drive. Um, yeah. And then part of it is also, I think, fear, right, which I think we all have. And so um, one of the one of the running jokes in the in the Rhodes Scholarship is that, you know, um, every Rhodes Scholar had a bright future behind them. And yeah. it's like this thing that people say to kind of uh, kind of mock the trajectory of what Rhodes Scholars become after. And so there's also a little bit of fear of like, hey, what does it look like not to live out my purpose? What does it look mm -hmm. like not to do the things and accomplish the things in the world that I would like to? And yeah. so there is a little bit of like kind of kicking me um, forward and, and kind of making me feel like mm -hmm. I need to kind of do the next thing and find the next thing. Um, but I don't think at this point it's about like, oh, how big is the accolade or how visible is the thing that I'm doing? I think yeah. now it's more and more, what are the things that are going to make me feel like I did things that make my life matter? What are the things that are going to make me feel like I did work that's impactful? And what are the things that are going to make me sleep a little bit better at night? Yeah. <laughs> um, because I'm doing things that I think I'm ethically yeah. aligned with and also yeah. aligned uh, with the mission of. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, we're going to go back to you, just your time in college and um, the things that you did there. But right now, still on what you're doing currently, like you were named like Empowers Ethnic Minority Future. You were named one of... Um, the ethnic minority future leaders, what does that mean to you? Because you were talking about being a minority and how, you know, mentors have helped you. So what does it mean to you being recognized in that way? Um, it's, it felt really good 
for, I think, one big reason, which is when I started my work, um, there weren't a lot of people that looked like me where I work. Yeah. Um, and so I really kind of thought about the ways in which it can be a little bit alienating to be in an environment where nobody looks like you and nobody has the same kind of like cultural yeah. and other background as you. Um, and so the fact that I had a mentor who kind of brought me along made me want to start mentoring, you know, like, you know, everything from, you know, people that were in our in our recruiting pipeline um, some of the interns that we had come in that were from diverse backgrounds, I really wanted to make sure that they had the kind of support system that made it possible for me um, to kind of navigate uh, an environment that was pretty foreign and, and unfamiliar. And so it felt really good to kind of be like, hey, actually, that thing that you're trying to do, which is to, to, to you know, expand access to these, to these opportunities for other people and make them comfortable and help them succeed is actually like, you know, it's kind of working. And so um, that that felt pretty good from that perspective. And the only thing I hope is that the visibility means that, like, you know, like other people like me see it and they're like, hey, I could I could do that work, right? Because she could do it. So so I could sure. do it, too. Yeah. Um, and so that's what I'm, I'm hoping comes out of the comes out of the award. I think another thing is that um, you you went to Penn and um, your studies did not unnecessarily like directly align to what you're doing right now. So I'm sure like for other people, that could be something that um, would be at the back of their mind that, oh man, I, this isn't what I did in undergrad, but I know um, you went on to do a master's related to what you're doing now. So still, how did it, how did you, what advice do you have for people who want to transition into something not necessarily related to what they were doing because sometimes like these like doubting yourself or you're afraid that people are gonna say ha you don't know what you're doing or <laughs> you know like you're switching you're undecided like what advice do you have for people and how did you go through that sure so I would say that so one of the things I really enjoyed about Penn was the the curriculum like you know the college requirements where you yeah. kind of have to go through every single type of class right that oh, you can yeah. find and so even though like my core my core focus was on political science and international relations was also kind of getting exposure to different kinds of things so I took classes in Wharton took classes in in different departments that were different from what I was doing and mm -hmm. so I think the 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 big value of that was kind of gaining a wide range of skills and a little bit of fluency across different ways of thinking and approaching problem solving. Um, and so I think that thing was like super helpful for kind of like transitioning into something a little bit different. Um, and then I also got really lucky, right, which is that where I work, like, you know, a lot of people come from different backgrounds, right, because the thing that they're selecting for is not like, hey, are you a, a finance major who's only done finance and and, yeah. and, and nothing else? They're yeah. really selecting for what are the course thinking abilities that you have? right? What's the way that you approach solving problems? Do you understand mm -hmm. the different concepts that you'll be dealing with um, that, that, that are core to the job? And then, the, you know, you, you spend your first nine to 12 months being trained um, in how, you know, how, how, like, we think about the world. And so I got really lucky in that, like, you know, there was a, a little bit of like landing strip, as it were, because I mm -hmm. had the opportunity to, to learn the stuff that I didn't know before. Um, but also still utilize the core skills, which is, I think, the skill that you get from a liberal arts um, education is less the like, oh, I know this and that political theory um, and more I know how to kind of approach um, problems and how to and, yeah. I, and I know how to think, as it were. And I know how to deal with not knowing. <laughs> like I know how yeah. to ask questions and things like that. 
I'm supposing some of the challenges that you face um, at work could be like short squeezes, like what happened with GameStop and, you know, with margin calls. So how do you manage to keep up with challenges like that? And even like dealing with clients panicking during like when things like that are happening, like how do you manage? Um, so I can't talk about my work. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um but but what I will say though is that like the thing about working in the in the financial services well in the finance industry is that when you're thinking about investing you kind of and especially when you're thinking about investing from the perspective that we do which is kind of like a a macroeconomic fundamental approach it's like you need to really be paying attention to what's going on in the world and it's not just the headline right that you care about Mm -hmm. like oh this is what happened with GameStop the thing you should care about is like what are the things that drove like you know people into that particular stock or that particular market like what are the fundamental drivers of what has happened rather than just the headline and so it's helpful kind of to break the thing down because I think it's more manageable that way um and and that is all I will say about my job yeah right now I'm gonna go into rapid fire questions and then we'll go back to like these main questions that I had for you so this rapid fire it's like the quickest answer you can come up with so first question is stocks or cryptocurrencies stocks soccer or rugby <laughs> this might get you in trouble over rugby <laughs> okay uh favorite musician winky d are you serious yes what's your favorite, favorite song by him one song okay right now okay right three. Now, song, the song called sekai on his mm-hmm. um on the album before the like single that he released i like area 51 because i think it's so funny but i love everything by him really like the whole catalog talking or texting or oh, talking what do you think is your biggest accompl- accomplishment or an accomplishment that made you that opened a lot of doors or made you see yourself in a different way that I would go back to so I was like 16 years old and it was just after like my O-level results had come out mm-hmm. um, and I had seen like an ad for the Econet scholarship right so the mm-hmm. Joshua Nkomo scholarship uh, you know and I kind of just like kind of threw my hat in and um, and then a few months later I get a phone call. I was at the Luna Park, which I don't know if you know where it is, like, but it's I like do. right by the Harare showgrounds. Yeah. And I was there with my little cousins, like watching them on rides. And um, I got this call and they were like, hey, you know, you, we wanted to let you know that you got this, this scholarship. And, and, you know, like I'd known that my grades were good, right? But yeah. I think it was like kind of like the one, the external validation of like, mm. hey, some people think like you both have like really great grades and also lots of leadership potential. Um, but it was also just the realization that like, if I did the things that I do really well, it could open mm-hmm. up opportunities that were helpful, both from a financial perspective, but also from a de- personal development perspective. And so it kind of made me feel a little bit more emboldened to go after things. And so even applying to Penn, like I applied to like a handful of schools and only like three those schools that I really, really wanted to go to. And they yeah. were really highly se- selective. And everyone yeah. told me, you got to have a backup option. You have to apply to, you know, apply to UCT or, you know, or somewhere in SA where, you know, you're likely to get in because of your grades or whatever and just like you know try something else and there was a kind of stubbornness that I I sometimes wish I had still had the same amount of which was I was like no I'm gonna go to the U.S. I'm gonna go to an Ivy League university and I'm gonna study a liberal arts degree and it's gonna be great and I was like (laughs) so sure and so stubborn about it and I and I often wonder what would have happened on admission day if I got it absolutely nothing because that would have been a wash Um, but, but I think it kind of gave me 
a little bit more confidence to go after things in the world outside of just like the context that I had existed in, which was school. And, 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 and so that, that probably is like the, a real catalyzing moment, as it were, mm. for me. You also went to a girls high school, right? Like, how do you think that's been important to your foundation as a person? Sure. I don't know if it was anything to do with it being an all girls school, okay. um, but I think it was the school, right? And so I oh, had right. two teachers. I think it was two teachers that I had. So my history teacher, Ms. Papaya, and my um, my English literature teacher, Mrs. Patel, they were people that like really kind of, one, were really encouraging of, you know, intellectual exploration in a way that was really great. And so my my English literature teacher was like giving me books, right, outside of the like assigned set books because she was like, hey, you love to read, you should read this, right? This is the literature of the world that you should be exposed to. And my history teacher was the same. He was like, hey, you know, like, you know, in, in like A-level history, you kind of choose your topics or whatever, right? And he would be like, hey, I think you could do all of this, like go learn this stuff, right? And then you yeah. could do it. And so it was kind of like, you know, people rooting for you and also people then kind of taking you aside and being like, hey, I mostly see you kind of killing the like stuff that's in the curriculum. Let me just yeah. help you expand your mind even further than that. And so mm -hmm. like, I think that's probably been like a really important thing because I think I've remained super curious, continued to love books um, because of it. And I think that's like been an important part of like, me and, and and who I am we're talking about how you know you got this foundation from your teachers and everything just after those years of coming to Penn and everything um which year do you think has been the most perspective shifting thing and what happened during that year wow that's a tough one like picking a year I would probably say that the year after graduation and my first year in the Rhodes Scholarship was the most perspective shifting for me like 2015 into 2016 um, and for a few reasons, um, I think I got to Oxford at a time when there was a lot of like kind of student activism happening. And a lot of it was related to, um, to kind of roads must fall and like really confronting the colonial legacy um, of not just the university that I was going to, but also of the scholarship that I had. Accepted. Oh, yes. Um, and so it was a real moment of reckoning um, for me because I had to really kind of interrogate what it meant for me to be on that scholarship yes. and, you know, kind of like make myself um, or find a way, right, to work through the like kind of dissonance that comes from being from what was formerly Rhodesia and also taking yeah. a Rhodes scholarship. Yeah. Um, and so that was pr like for me, it, it kind of pushed me more and more towards like what is what is one what is your purpose right and like what are the different ways in which you can live your life in ways that fulfill that especially because you're getting these opportunities that are born out of like a really kind of messed up history right yeah. because um that's in a lot of ways those are the foundations of the road scholarship so that was perspective shifting for me because it, it just like made me much more intentional about things that i was doing that's the first thing the second thing is like seeing the student activism and seeing the kinds of things that people could accomplish when they were kind of really, um, when they were strong in their convictions and were willing to kind of organize around the thing that they believe in. And I think that at Penn, there were ways in which like, that wasn't really my experience necessarily. But when I got to Oxford, I saw a lot of like, you know, a lot of students who were, yes, they were, you know, doing their research and doing their degrees and all of that, but were, were so kind of convicted about the kind of context that they were living in that they felt like they needed to organize. So they were marches, they were sit-ins, they were teaching sessions. And, and it was kind of just really motivating, right? To kind of see that like, this is what people can do when they really stand strong in their convictions. And it made me want to like, really be clear about what are the things I'm convicted about in that way that I'm willing to kind of spend my time on and extend effort on and go over and above for. Um, and so that was like, 
that was a real kind of big, big shift for me in, in terms of like how I was thinking about structuring the, I guess, my my career choices and the things that I do outside of work and even the things that I infuse into my work, like some of the work on diversity and inclusion. And it's actually interesting because I think I had the opposite thing when I went to the UK. I thought people were a lot more silent or they they didn't want to talk about race or things like that. So it's really interesting to know that that was the environment at Oxford. But still, um, just looking at Oxford and Philly, like what do you think were like the main differences between people from Philly and Oxford and maybe even the food as well? Like, you know, Penn is in a, is in a city, right? So it really yeah. is a city campus. And so you kind of get a lot of things because you're in the city. There's like yeah. a whole lot of like, cultural experiences that don't um that don't center the university right and yeah. so that was like a really great thing to have in philly it was a little bit different in oxford because in a lot of ways like the university was the like you know in, in the my center, experience the university the was the city point, yeah. right yeah yeah and so a lot of what you were doing was structured around the the university and so i did feel like a pretty big disconnect from like what does a, per- a local person from oxford right like a person mm-hmm. who's from oxfordshire like what are they what do they like? What do they care about? Like, what are, what are the things that they do, right? Because yeah. I was kind of stuck in a little bit of a bubble. And so I think the difference is that it felt like Philadelphia was a real experience um, where you could choose to immerse yourself into what it meant to live in West Philadelphia. Um, but in Oxford, it was it was pretty difficult to kind of connect outside of the university. Yeah, um, I will say that one of the things I did enjoy about Oxford that didn't have so much at Philly is like, when you think about like, um, you know, there was a farmer's market that I would go to a couple of times a week because, you know, you had local farmers that would bring their produce and you could go and you were like really picking out all the little things that you were trying to eat or whatever. And so really liked the feeling that it was like, you know, in an American big city, sometimes you can feel completely disconnected from the systems that produce your food. Um, and then having a place like, you know, Oxford, which has the farmer's market and has the cows in the meadow that you can walk past while you're, you know, taking your stroll to class um, nice. was kind of like, hey, I feel pretty connected to to both nature, but also to the agricultural yeah. that produce my food. And I, and I kind of felt like that was a pretty cool cool thing to to be able to have as a diversifying experience to what I had in Philly. So did you know that you were going to come back to the US or was that like when did that decision come about? When did you finalize that okay, I know I'm going back to the US. I'm not staying here. <laughs> um so I I was in so the summer before I moved back to the US, I was working for the Rwanda Development Board. So I was working in Rwanda. Yeah. I was doing some private sector development projects there. And as you know, I studied public policy and so really wanted to be a policymaker in the sphere of like, you know, economic development and yeah. private sector development. Um, and, you know, after working there for a few months, like I was having a conversation with my boss and, you know, we spoke about the importance of having a really global experience, right? And kind of, you know, doing the things that I think in some ways are quite unique to the US, which is like, there's a particular kind of work ethic in the US that you build, right? Mm -hmm. So that no no matter where else you go, you can kind of like, you you can keep up, right? You can kind of keep up and you can outwork everybody because you kind of build that stamina. So there was that, which is the thing I was looking for, or at least like kind of knew to look for out of like kind of the mentorship that I was getting. And then the other thing was like kind of working in a more global environment, right? So like understand the world and the world is a big, big place, right? Before you kind of come back and try to do the policy making on the continent, especially because a lot of what happens in the continent in terms of development and financing um, of of private sector development is, is really being decided outside of the continent. And so kind of building fluency around, you know, how do 
globally, how does capital move? What are the push and pull factors? How do you think about investing and allocating to certain um, assets and things like that? And so it was like kind of in Rwanda being like, hey, this is what I want my life to look like in 10 years. But in the interim, I do want to learn about the rest of the world. And so, you know, the, the job that I had made sense because it's a global investment manager that really focuses on understanding the fundamental drive economies and markets. And so for me, it was like, hey, no brainer, I got to go back and get this experience. Um, and then, you know, ultimately, in the long run, um, I got to come back home. So well, that is, that is awesome that you want to come back with venture. I'll ask about that later. So you went to Rwanda. What made you decide to go work in Rwanda? And I guess, what did you learn from the people of Rwanda? I've been to Rwanda once and, you know, I learned a little bit about how the people are and how they're just different. So what did you learn from the people and how did you even get that opportunity in the first place? Um, sure. So um, I, I basically got that opportunity through... Um, through a fellow Rhodes Scholar who told me to kind of apply for the role um, okay. and kind of offer my expertise in terms of like offer my expertise to the to the to, to the to the department that I was working for yeah. um, and so that's how the opportunity came about a lot of what I learned is just like one like I think Rwanda is so interesting to me because you have a country that has like a really really tough history right you kind of have the specter of 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 genocide sitting over yeah. it but the country is so incredibly resilient and the people have, one have not forgotten right so you go to the to the you know to the genocide museum and you can kind of see what that history is right so they kind of own that history and are using that history as a as as a as a consistent reminder of where they don't want to go back to and so that was like a really cool experience and like seeing the ways in which you memorialize the parts of your country um that you you know, that are, that are, that have been like a big shaper of, of, of who you are as a people and then kind of figure out who you are as a country moving on from that. And in some ways, like, let me know if you, you know, don't want me to say this, but in a lot of ways in Zimbabwe, we have a lot of denial about some of the tough parts of our history, like what happened in Matabela land in the 1980s. And so for me, there was like a little bit of envy around like, what does it look like to confront your history? Um, and then to really try to start to build out an idea of what you are and who you are as a nation relative to that. So I thought that was great. Um, the second thing was um, learning just like what it looks like to be in a public sector that is so effective, right? Like this is what happens when people who are qualified and like very technical are in the positions that they need to be in and are really empowered to make change. And so every single like ministry that I like, you know, collaborated with when I was there, it was like people who were at the very top of their field, right? They knew their stuff, they were experienced and they kind of like, you know, were bringing all the experience to bear on the stuff they were doing for the country. And so you, you hear this trope in a lot of places, right? Where, you know, the public sector is often inefficient because people are not that skilled and are yeah. often not having the same incentives as people yeah. in, in the private sector. And in Rwanda, I thought it was like the opposite where it was like really high people who are really, really incentivized to do really good things. Um, and both by like, you know, they're like taken care of, but also because like they really are tying the work that they're doing to the work of building a country and building an economy that works. Um, and so that was just like a really cool experience to see yeah. in the in the public sector. And I think they also have so much integrity and little corruption while like executing what they do, which is so interesting. Like, I don't know how Zimbabwe in this is like having such a struggle with corruption. How do you think, do you have any thoughts on how like corruption can be eradicated or? 
That's a complicated not, question. <laughs> I'm not an expert on that. I'm not an expert on that at all. The, the thing I will say is this, right? Um, I think that like people are flawed, right? And yeah. often when people are in positions of power, their flaws are magnified by that power, right? Because they just like yeah. are able to do more with like, with their flaws. I think for me, one of the most important things is like really thinking through institutionalization of, of things, of, of, of anti-corruption, right? We need to normalize the declaration of, you know, um, conflicts of interest by people in, in, in decision-making positions in, in our government. Like it's one of the things that we need to be doing. We yeah. need to make sure that we have really strong checks and balances mm-hmm. on what people are doing and what people are able to do. And so I think one of the things that I'm watching really closely and very fascinatedly is like the constitutional crisis, as it were, that's happening in Zimbabwe right now, where you really have to ask yourself questions about whether or not the judiciary can be an effective check and balance on, on people's power and make sure that people are behaving the way that they should, because you can't always trust people to just be good. And so care a lot about building institutions that are robust and that don't leave us at the mercy of, you know, hoping we just get a good leader. A good leader only goes so far. I think we need strong institutions that can reel them in when they're not so good. That's a word. Uh, okay. So, yeah, we're, we're going to wrap up now. But before we do that, I just wanted to ask you, like, obviously, throughout your career and your life so far, there's been many ways that um, your success has been measured, like you get scholarships, awards, you know, great GPA, whatever. But now that you're entering or you're in a certain stage in your life, like how have you decided to measure your success? That's a, that's a tough question and an important one. So I think part of it is like, even if you're outside of school, right? Yeah. And you're in a workplace, like, you are still getting external metrics, right? Which is like, how are you doing, right? So it's like, you get grades and review processes, you get, you know, promotions or not getting promotions, right? Those things kind of tell you how you're doing. And so there's those external things, um, which which are going to follow you no matter what you do, right? Because assessment is a part of like, kind of is is a part of like being in a corporate or other environment. Um, But I think the thing that's been like, especially over the past year too, that's been really real for me has been, measuring my my success by also like how much well-being I have right Mm. so um it's for me a good week is when I've had enough sleep and have you know been able to cook a meal that I'm really proud of and excited about and have spent time with the people that I care about um and also feel like I'm furthering some of my goals right am I learning something new am I um am I feeling like I'm being challenged did I do something that made me feel particularly productive or whatever else right so less about just like what everybody else is telling me and a lot Mm of it is like I've got to be like happy with myself and I've got to feel like I'm connected to myself because when I'm not everything else falls apart and so have definitely because of the pandemic and spending a lot of time alone um you know because you know we're all we were all pretty isolated at the beginning of this like I think it was like hey look inward a little bit more right because that that's pretty important okay which is gonna lead me to uh the rapid fire questions um and the first one is going to be what's I think you've already answered this like but maybe it's different. What's the biggest thing that this whole pandemic has taught you? Oh, looking inward, for sure. <laughs> and taking care of myself. <laughs> What's something that people assume about you? Which might be true or not true, but like something that people quickly assume. I think people might assume that I'm much more serious as a person than I am. Okay. 
No one comment. <laughs> uh, what are three things you learned when you started or when you were working on ZW Connect? There's a lot I don't know in the world because <laughs> it really kind of taught me that like, hey, there's, you know, you can have a really great idea, but like you just like kind of have to know what you don't know and figure out how to close those gaps. So there's yeah. a lot you don't know. Two, your best intentions are not enough to solve the problems, the biggest problems in the world. They're often structural and like a lot of the things that you're thinking through can tend to be band-aids too. Yeah. Um, three is when to let go. <laughs> uh, yeah. So... Um, I think like for a while when I was, you know, transitioning into graduate school and like, you know, working through the what is my career going to be and all of that and moving to a new country and, and all of that, I, I wanted to keep it going and I wanted to, to keep doing the work. But I knew that like, you know, it was going to look pretty different now that I was like in a different stage in my life. And I had to kind of make the decision of like, what does it look like to put a really good end to this, right? Like, what does it look like to wrap this up and call it what it is, which was like a really great and informative period of my life. And also one that was impactful for the communities that we worked for. And then just kind of like put a bow on it, and move on. And maybe there's a world in which I come back and I do it at a different scale and definitely in different ways because I know more than I did when I started it. Um, but like, man, it was hard because, you know, it's like a thing you care about to let go of. But, um, but it taught me like there are times when like it's okay, right? The work is done and you kind of have to move on and, and, and accept your limitations. Who inspires you? Uh, someone, you can say one person from you're related to or whatever, or and then another person you're not related to. Sure. Um, person I'm related to, um, I'd probably say my, my dad. Um, he is one of the hardest working, most resilient people that I know. Um, and even with all the like hard work and the, <laughs> and, and with everything on his plate, he consistently makes time for people and will give to, to anyone. Um, and so I think he, he really inspires me to be one, both like giving and two, to be like tough and, and resilient. Um, someone I don't know. I find Nobody. it hard. I find it hard to be like I. I do find it hard to like have like one person that I absolutely look up to. But I'll tell you what uh, I do do. Right. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I do is like whenever I come across the profile of somebody who I think like they're doing really cool and, and impressive work. So for example, my boss at the Rwanda Development Board. Before I worked for her, I'd looked her up. And the thing that I like to do with things like that is like I just like to like hey. I find whatever interviews they've given, right? And kind of try to figure out like, what are the things that matter for them? What are the things that have been key to their success? How do how have they thought about their role and their, and their impact in the world? And I kind of like try to like knit it all together because in a lot of ways, right? At least for me, it's not like, you know, in my immediate family, there's a blueprint for what I'm doing, right? Like I was studying political science and international relations. My father's an engineer, okay? He was kind of like, I don't really know what you're doing, right? And yeah. so- for me, for me, it was like, I didn't have a blueprint. And so I needed to go and find people that have done work that I think is interesting or have had an impact that I think is good. And then I try to like figure out like, what's their story, right? And which parts of that can I connect to that can help me build my own blueprint? Um, but also which parts of that story are like unique to them. And I don't have to be that or do that, right? Because everyone's um, circumstances are different. But like, that's something that I do do. So it's not one person, but like, it's a, it's a collection of people. Like I'll see an article written by someone. I'm like, oh, you sound interesting. And then I find what I can about them um, yeah. because, I, because I'm trying to build a mental map, right? For what it looks like to, to build a good career and to live a good life. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. Okay. I thought you were going to mention one person, but that's okay. 
Sorry. <laughs> no, you did mention your boss from Rwanda. Uh, the one of the last ones. Which country you talked about? You miss traveling. Which country have you traveled to where you have the best memories? Zimbabwe is not like allowed. Um. Okay. So probably, probably Mexico. Oh. Yeah, so I both worked in Mexico and then also like kind of spent some time there like traveling and vacationing. Um, and I've really enjoyed like, I've really enjoyed the food in Mexico City. I've really enjoyed the culture in Mexico City. I love the beaches and Tulum. Um, and so have really kind of enjoyed, I love food. And so for me, it's important to be in a place that has a really rich food culture. And I also love to, to be in beautiful surroundings. And Tulum just has a lot of like really beautiful um hotels and resorts and little restaurants and even the cabanas by the beach are really great so i i love mexico all right um final question what's your what's your message of hope to anybody watching this <laughs> they're probably gonna be young people <laughs> message of professionals hope, um, yeah wow that is that is hard um Hmm. Or, me- or positive message anything about positive me message yeah okay okay let me think about that let me think about it for one second <laughs> um probably like don't be so hard on yourself right like i feel like There's when you're song. young <laughs> yeah <laughs> but when you're young and you're trying to figure out like you know what you're trying to do in the world and all of that it's like you know it's very easy to either benchmark yourself against other people who are doing different things or to just consistently be hard on yourself because you haven't gotten to the place that you 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 might expect that you would have gotten to by whatever age you've set as a target um and one of the things that i and i'm still learning this in a lot of ways is like you got to like kind of measure yourself by yourself right and not be so hard on yourself right and so really kind of take the full picture and be be a little bit generous with yourself and say hey given my circumstances how am i doing and even if i'm not doing well relative to my circumstances um don't like kind of beat yourself down because that doesn't really help like kind of like make the plan for like what does it look like for me to get better here um and focus on that and so i'd probably say don't be so hard on yourself because we're all figuring this thing out and life is hard and so it's hard enough without you beating yourself down well measure yourself by yourself that's a very important one that i need to remind myself um i need to hear that thank you so much ritendo um this is this has been amazing and i am honored that you even said yes and <laughs> took time out of your busy schedule <laughs> today's a wednesday did you have work today i'm going to stop recording yeah,